Again, we don't have uh, gospel story time this week because of spring break. Uh, so parents with young kids, don't worry. Uh, it's okay. If they're making sounds, I can, I can handle that. Uh, kiddos, your, your word of the day is Pentecost. Big word that we are going to talk a lot about. Uh, going to talk a lot about this morning. And so mark it down. Um, every time you hear it, see how many times I say it. And, but most importantly, ask your parents. This is going to be big, though, because I really want you to test your parents on this. Because the whole point of my sermon today is that everybody here will be able to say, what is the meaning of Pentecost? So I, that's your word, and I want you to ask your parents, give them a quiz, and say, Mom and Dad, what does Pentecost mean? And they need to be able to explain it to you. My scorekeeper is Leanne. Leanne, can you stand up? This is Leanne. Many of you know her. If you don't, she is the nursery director. And after giving such a wonderful plug... I am making her my scorekeeper, so you come to her with uh, the final score and come to her with uh, the amount of times you need. How many volunteers do you think we need to just make your life wonderful? Okay, how many do we need? Okay. Okay, we need 25 volunteers out of this room. Why are you laughing? There are, I don't know, 400 here. So we got it. We got you covered. 25 people will be coming to you after the service, and our problems are solved. How about that? All right. Acts. When, you know, when you think of Acts, you think of, uh, you think of Acts 2, you think of Pentecost. Um, we have arrived at what is one of the most significant moments in all of redemptive history. As significant as anything you can name in your Bible, whether it be the Exodus or the birth of Jesus or the cross of Jesus, you name it. When it comes to events within the story of Scripture, this is up there with them all. But I wonder if that is how you view it. I really, really struggled this week more than I have in a long time in writing this sermon not because I didn't know what to say, but because I had way too much to say. And as I wrote, I had, you know, well, I need to explain this. And so it would add to that. And then I said, well, if I go there, I need to go here and add to that. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and the reason why I feel like I have so much to say is because I feel like we have so much to learn here in particular. If I were to ask you, why the birth of Jesus is important. I think most people here could probably give me an answer to that. If I were to ask you why the cross of Jesus is important, I think most people can give me an answer to that. If I were to ask you why the resurrection of Jesus is important, I think most people can give me an answer to that. If I were to ask you why Pentecost is important, I think many of us would struggle to give an answer to that. In fact, I, uh, I know that to be the case. I asked some people randomly throughout the week, hey, what is Pentecost? What does it mean? And I got a lot of blank stares or stumbling about trying to answer. And the answers that we do have, for the most part, are shaped by a relatively new interpretation of Pentecost that has essentially replaced what has been the historical interpretation for a long time. That is to say, over the past 100 years, a theology of Pentecost has dramatically changed. Um, and here's why. This is a short little history lesson for you that, that's important to understand as we under, come at 
Acts 2 because it's so dominant in the way we approach, approach it. Um, you know, our, our, our country has, has seen two great, they're called awakenings, two great revivals, the first great awakening and the second great awakening. The second great awakening in our country is marked by very emotional revivals. That's where all the revivals and revivalism came from. And around the turn of the 20th century, uh, some of these revivals started to get um, exceedingly emotional, expressive, and the claim was that what was taking place at these revivals was what we see taking place in our passage in Acts 2. Thus, the movement known as Pentecostalism came to be. Now, at first, this was kind of a fringe movement, but in the 1960s, it started becoming a a part of really every mainstream Protestant denomination and even into the Catholic Church. And it's only, I mean, we're talking 50, 60 years. That's how young this movement and doctrine is. But in that 50, 60 years, it's impossible to exaggerate the impact that it has had on modern evangelical Christianity. It affects the way we view the person and work of the Holy Spirit, along with the way we understand the New Testament, the way we understand the early church, Certainly the way we understand Acts and most specifically the way we understand this passage. Nowhere is the Pentecostal influence more prevalent than our understanding of the day of Pentecost itself. Now I do want to be really, I want to be very charitable uh, to our charismatic brothers and sisters uh, because their influence was and continues to be a very needed correction within Christianity um, which had become an emotionless religion with an overemphasis on the mind and doctrine. That's where our tradition in particular struggles. And, um, and, and, and what came about was kind of this resurgence of the idea of an actual experience of God, not just thoughts about God, not just doctrines of God, but experience of God and the mystery of the faith and the work of the Holy Spirit that had largely been forgotten. And so we owe a debt in many ways to this movement. But yet, at the same time, one could argue that it's become an overreaction or an overcorrection. I don't want to get into debate this morning. We might do that a little bit in in the weeks to come. Only to say this about Acts 2 as as we approach the idea of Pentecost. One of the consequences of Pentecostalism's influence on Pentecost itself is that it is no longer viewed as a once-and-for-all epic historical event, something akin to like the cross and resurrection. It's no longer viewed as this epic-changing once-and-for-all event within the story of redemption, and it is now viewed more as an experience that we should all seek to replicate. That's the major shift that has taken place. And so what I think I have this morning, I'm saying all of this long introduction to set this stage. Here's why I struggled with the sermon. As we approach this massively, massively important passage, this enormous event within redemption history, I feel as though I have people who either have no idea what Pentecost is, um, meaning, you know, even if you're a follower of Jesus and I ask you, what is Pentecost? You say, I don't, 
really know. When I, when I came to faith, I knew something about the cross. I had no idea what this whole Pentecost business was. And certainly if you're here and you're, and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're just kind of checking out the claims of Christianity, you probably have not heard of Pentecost as much as you've heard Christians you know, talk about things like the cross and whatnot. So I think I, I probably have a lot of people here who have no idea what Pentecost is or those who have um, what has become the predominant view, which is the Pentecostal view of what Pentecost is. Even if you're not, uh, even if you don't consider yourself a charismatic, you need to know that that movement has influenced the way you view Acts 2, and you probably have that kind of view of it. That is to say, when, when I think about Pentecost, where we are, I think largely we have an uninformed view of Pentecost, or in my humble opinion, a misinformed view of Pentecost. And that's why I struggle with the passage. I know I know you all like to give me a hard time about moving slowly through uh, books of the Bible and my preaching. I hope you notice that I'm, I'm doing better. We got through Acts 1 fairly quickly. Uh, but I was talking to Abby last night and, um, you know, I still did not know fully where I was going with this. And I said, you know, I just feel like I almost need to just preach the first six words of Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost came. Just that right there needs so much explanation. In other words, my struggle this morning was I felt like this need to, I guess I told the way I said it to Abby is like, I feel like I need a lecture on Pentecost before I can preach on Pentecost. Um, I get to teach it before I can preach it. And Abby said, well, why don't you just do that? So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to be teaching uh, more than, it's going to feel more like a, a lecture than a sermon Perhaps. If you like that kind of thing, you can thank Abby. If you get bored by that kind of thing, you can blame Abby. Uh, but my, my goal this morning, I have one goal, and it's this. That we all leave here with a robust, historical, orthodox understanding of Pentecost. Because I just think that it's that important. If I'm going to effectively be able to preach it, which we will do next week, not just next week, but all of Acts 2 and the entire book going forward, we have to understand this one thing. So, what is Pentecost? Let me begin with a modern illustration that may help you conceptualize the way Pentecost works in in the story. Over over the past uh, 10 years... The way we do shopping has radically changed, hasn't it? If you, if you want something, now predominantly, what do you do? You go online and you order it. And most specifically, you go to Amazon and, and it's kind of become the one-stop shop for everything. And you get it from Amazon. Now, there are three components to the online ordering process. You purchase it, you wait, and then it arrives. If you view the work of Jesus, the story of Jesus, this way then everything his gospel offers is the Amazon center, the storehouse of promise. And Pentecost is the package arriving. Okay? Now, now you see how important the Pentecost story is. When you click purchase on Amazon, do you own that product? Uh, yes and no. Yes, it's been paid for. Yes, it's yours. But no, in the sense of you don't have it yet. And there is no point in owning it if you don't have it. And this is why when the driver pulls up and puts that package on the porch, that's the best moment of online shopping. There's way too much much snickering going on. A lot of husbands looking at wives. Um, That's the moment, right? It's not the Amazon. It's when it shows up and it arrives. So 
when you look at the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus and all that Jesus accomplishes and offers, essentially the fulfillment of all of God's promises, all of that gets to us, is delivered to the world on the day of Pentecost. The package of redemption, the package of the new covenant arrives at Pentecost. So Jesus builds this storehouse of all of God's promises and the Holy Spirit is the delivery man that gets the promises from heaven's storehouse to the world. And Pentecost is the day the package arrives. Or to use biblical language, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. Well, then all of God's promises find their delivery in the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost is the day of delivery, the day the new covenant arrives. Simply put, Pentecost is the beginning of the new covenant. The first day of the new age, as my sermon title says. You see, we view the story of Scripture of one covenant of God in essentially two parts. The Old Covenant in the Old Testament, the New Covenant in the New Testament. And in the middle, Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the entire Old Covenant, meaning everything in the Old Testament is actually about Jesus. And then his arrival and work institutes a new covenant. But that transition from Old Covenant, looking forward to the work of Jesus, and New Covenant as the application of the work of Jesus takes place in Acts 2. That's how big this is. When you look at the strangeness of that day, and we will next week, all of it has rich, symbolic significance about what has changed with the arrival of the new covenant. And we'll look at that next week. But for today, let's briefly flesh out this idea more. Let's, let's, let's look at Pentecost. And we're going to do it this way, by looking at Pentecost and the old covenant and Pentecost and the new covenant. And again, my goal this morning is that everyone leaves here with an understanding. If somebody had to walk up to you and say, what does Pentecost mean? That you would be able to answer that. And it begins, that answer begins with Pentecost and the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, there were three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. Um, meaning three times a year that Jews would return to Israel, um, return to Jerusalem, the temple, um, for a festival. Two of which are closely tied together. The Passover and Pentecost. The Passover you are, you are very familiar with. Whether you know it or not, you, you may not realize it, but you are, um, if you're a follower of Jesus. Um, that's where we've been the past couple of years at TCPC. That's the Passover week. Passover is when Jews would return to Jerusalem to commemorate that moment in Israel's history where the Lord delivered them from Egypt, their slavery, and this thing called the Exodus. And the meal that Jesus was sharing with his disciples in the upper room was the Passover meal. But it's there as we saw in that series, it's there that Jesus changed the meal forever by instituting what he calls a new covenant. And then, of course, he is crucified on Friday of Passover week and then rises from the dead on the following Sunday. So now Passover week is called for Christians Holy Week, and we will celebrate that obviously here in a few weeks. But what many people don't realize is that 50 days after the Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem was another pilgrimage. 
50 days. That's why it's called Penta Cost. Penta five, you get that in the etymology there. Pentecost means 50th, the 50th day where Jews would, 50th day after the Passover, where Jews would return. And to be honest with you, when they returned, they returned to party. Whereas the Passover celebrates the Exodus, Pentecost celebrates the harvest. You see, this is the time of the year um, of the wheat harvest. It took, uh, and, so, and so this was called the Feast of Harvests. As you know, in an agrarian culture, nothing is more exciting and worthy of celebration than when the harvest come. Their very livelihood and life depended upon it. And so the Jews would gather every year to celebrate God's provision of another harvest, celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. So now, even now, you are starting to see how this imagery plays out in the New Testament. In the Passover, Jesus accomplishes the promises of the new covenant. And then 50 days later comes the harvest of the new covenant at Pentecost. But there's more to Pentecost in the old covenant. You see, the Passover and Exodus was the deliverance of God's people from slavery. But when did the official establishment of God's people take place? That is to say... When did God make a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would be an actual nation unto themselves, a holy nation, that they would have their own law and their own culture, even a tabernacle that he would dwell with them in their midst? When did that take place? Well, that took place at Mount Sinai. Well, guess how many days were between Exodus and Sinai? Fifty. And so the Jew, to the Jews, Pentecost was also associated with Sinai and all that that entails. God meeting with Moses, the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, so forth. And so next week we will look at all this strange imagery and we will see how in many ways it mirrors Sinai, but in a different way. Pentecost is the true and better Sinai. We'll look at that. But here's... Let me wrap up the whole Old Covenant understanding of of Pentecost. It was a celebration of two things. And these two things are important when we get to the New Testament definition. Two things. The harvest and the Old Covenant established at Sinai. Now let's turn to the New Covenant and see how Pentecost becomes the harvest of the New Covenant that Jesus brought. If you've been around the church for any amount of time then hopefully you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Please tell me you know that if you come to church here, because that's what I'm trying to tell you every Sunday. He's the hero of every story. All God's promises find their yes in Christ. So all the Old Testament narratives, all the older covenants with Abraham, Moses, David, all of it finds its fulfillment and accomplishment in Jesus. And so this is why the Christian gospel proclaims Jesus alone as our Savior. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus and I am confusing you to no end with all this Pentecost talk and all this covenant talk, it's really simple. Here's what we believe. Jesus is our only hope. Our only hope is found in him and in what he accomplished. Or as we will sing today, in Christ alone my hope is found. That's the gospel. Chances are you're familiar with that. But question, how is what Jesus did 
apply to us? How do we become benefactors of his work 2,000 years ago? How do we become participants of this new covenant? That is to say, how do we get in Christ alone? Well, theologically, that answer is by faith alone. You believe upon him and you are in Christ. But functionally, what is the answer? In other words, how does all this work? How is it that Jesus' death is applied to me? How is it that Jesus' resurrection is applied to me? By faith, functionally, how does it work? Well, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was something strange said about him. John was baptizing the Jewish baptism of repentance to prepare for the Messiah. But then he said this about the Messiah. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. And then he said this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's why wind and fire, spirit and fire are so prominent at Pentecost. We'll we'll get there next week. Then, when Jesus is teaching, he continues this theme of a baptism of the Spirit. Like when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says that you have to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. And towards the end of his ministry, Jesus tells his disciples that they will have to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So here's my point. Alongside the work of Jesus, there is this secondary theme continued of baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we are anticipating. And the connection is this, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was viewed as the way that the work of Jesus becomes ours. The promises of Jesus become ours. The baptism of Holy Spirit takes all of what Jesus did, all the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus, and makes them ours. In other words, the baptism of the Holy Spirit puts us in Christ. Okay. That starts to make sense, and we're, we're getting towards Pentecost now. That starts to make sense... If you view the imagery of baptism the way you just saw it performed, this is why we we certainly accept immersion as a valid form of baptism, but the reason why we perform baptism the way we do is we think it is more faithful to the imagery of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the pouring out of all God's promises in Christ upon the believer, soaked, covered, clothed with the new covenant. So then at the feast of the Passover, what we call Holy Week, Jesus fulfills everything necessary to institute a new covenant. And then 50 days later at the feast of Pentecost, the harvest of the new covenant arrives via the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At the Passover, the new covenant is purchased by Jesus. At Pentecost, the new covenant is delivered by the Holy Spirit. And so in this way, the day of Pentecost is as monumental to the redemptive story as events like the cross, resurrection, or anything else you name. Or to say it negatively, without it, we have no hope. Without it, redemption, salvation, new covenant is like a package purchased from Amazon that never arrives. What good 
is the storehouse of promise to us if there is no way to deliver that promise. But brothers and sisters, the promise has arrived. In the same way as Christ was crucified 2,000 years ago, in the same way that Christ was risen from the dead 2,000 years ago, Pentecost came 2,000 years ago. The Spirit delivered, ushered in the new covenant and delivered the hope of Jesus to this world. Now, next week we will return to this and look at the details of that. I promise I won't avoid um, all of that. But this week, let's just apply the teaching of Pentecost as an event. What this teaching means is that the day of Pentecost is to be viewed as a once and for all unrepeatable event in redemptive history, much like all the other events of Jesus. I want to invite you to view Pentecost like the birth of Jesus, like the life of Jesus, like the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of which are historical events with eternal implications and applications unto this day. I would have loved to have been there for the manger. That would have been amazing to see this take place. Man, that would have been glorious. See the angels light up the sky and, and witness the birth of Jesus. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been there to watch Jesus do his thing. His teachings, his miracles. Man, that would have been glorious. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been there to see the empty tomb. To see the resurrected Jesus. To see for myself, my own eyes, the resurrected. I would have loved to have been there. That would have been amazing. That would have been epic. But I wasn't. However, the fullness of the benefits of that are mine just as much as if I were there. All of that still belongs to me. And the same is true of Pentecost. Jesus died once and for all. But the implications and applications of his death flow to this very day. Meaning you can be partakers of an event that took place 2,000 years ago. And so it is with Pentecost. Pentecost is a once and for all historical event. But the implications and applications flow to this very day. It is the arrival of the new covenant. The first day of the new age. And the invitation is to become partakers of Pentecost. To join the new covenant that first arrived at Pentecost in a very dramatic way and receive all of the promises that flow therein. In other words, the invitation of Pentecost is the same as the invitation of the gospel. But at Pentecost, we are guaranteed that the gospel has truly come, guaranteed that it has been delivered to all who are baptized in the Spirit, meaning you have it all, Christian. You have it all. So here's the application. Enjoy what has been given to you. Here is where I'm going to be honest with you about my critique of Pentecostal understanding of Pentecost. It turns Pentecost into something that we need to pursue rather than something that we already have. That is to say, it turns the Christian life into a pursuit of something more from God when the entire message of Pentecost is that God has delivered unto us all he has to give. It has been given in its fullness. He has held nothing back. The problem 
is that the promises that are ours because of Pentecost have become boring. We'll look at all of it next week. But do you realize that in this new covenant that came to be at Pentecost, you have the very presence of God within you. It's no longer in a temple. That's astounding. Do you realize that the new covenant, within the new covenant, the law of God is not written on stone tablets for Mount Sinai, but literally written on your heart? That's amazing. Do you realize that the power of God that you see throughout all of Scripture is literally inside you? The blessings and experiences of the people of God was radically changed at Pentecost, is radically new. And the problem is that we've gotten bored with Pentecost. The problem is that the extraordinary promises of the gospel and of the new covenant have become ordinary. Because of Pentecost, Jesus and all that he has to offer you is now yours. So here's the question. Is that not enough? When we sing in Christ alone, we will, uh, we will recount what is ours in Christ. The question of questions is whether that is enough for you. Pentecost promised you Nothing but Jesus Christ alone and all the benefits therein. Is that promise enough? Is forgiveness of sins not enough? Is calling Almighty God your Heavenly Father not enough? Is the presence of God and the hope of eternal life, is it not enough? Is it enough when things are good? Is it enough for you when things are bad? Is it enough when emotions are high? Is it enough when emotions are low? Is it enough in the pain? Is it enough in the mundane? Is Jesus enough for you because that's all Pentecost is promising you nothing more nothing less than Jesus and all the benefits therein is that enough if the answer to that is yes then I have really 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 good news for you you have all you want and all you will ever need Jesus has come And in Pentecost, the fullness of Jesus now belongs to us. May Jesus and the delivery of promise be enough for us this day. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith to believe that you are enough, that all that we have is found in you, You have given us all that heaven has to give. And Lord, it is fitting that we now come to this table, which you promised by your spirit to apply all the promises of Jesus Christ to our hearts. Everything that becomes ours in the new covenant, everything that we're going to look at next week from Pentecost becomes ours by the spirit. And here you promise in this very ordinary very ordinary meal, so opposite of that day of Pentecost, very ordinary, very routine, but by your spirit, you promise us that all that was offered at Pentecost is offered now in this meal. Feed our souls with Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.